You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. Question for you. Did you ever notice that coins, perhaps are sitting in your pocket right now, or at least maybe in your wallet, have ridges on them? You ever wonder why they have ridges? Where the ridges came from? It actually dates back to the 16th century when certain metals was used in a certain shape, a round shape for a coin, and that represented the value of what that actual material is worth. But what ended up happening is that people in their sort of sinful ingenuity started to shave off the edges of the coin and collect the shavings to melt down the shavings to make more coins. And so the coin minters eventually created ridges in all of the coins so that you could tell when a coin had had its edges shaved off, it wasn't worth what it was claiming to be. That started back in the 1600s. And it continues today, it's simply out of tradition. Maybe you're like me and you just wonder all the things you see around you that you just have never thought much about. Why is it the way that it is? How did that come to pass? Perhaps you have an insatiable curiosity like I do, and things you just enjoy learning. Sometimes just curious facts to impress friends at a party. Did you know? You're like, wow, look at you, smarty pants. Like, the small holes in the plastic window in front of the airplane window? Has that ever concerned you? Why are those small holes there? Well, the small holes in the plastic window before the glass window of the airplane is there for two reasons. One, to allow for a difference in air pressure as the plane ascends and descends. And two, to also keep the window from fogging up. But what about the little bumps on the keyboard the F and the J key. You're like, really, there's bumps there? Go home and find out. Open up a laptop, step up to a PC, look at the keyboard, and find there's a tiny little bump there at the F and J key. Well, the reason that those bumps are there is to teach you to place your hands in the appropriate place so that having learned the placement of all of the keys, you can type without having to look at your keyboard. If you're just off by one key, who knows what you're saying? Ballpoint pens with a cap, have a hole in the top. Why? It's a safety feature. Because so often people will chew on their, their, their pens and then inhale the ball pen cap and they realize they have to put a hole there so people can breathe while they're waiting for emergency care. What about the placement of the number 57 on the Heinz ketchup bottle? It's placed at specific places around the bottle to help you get the ketchup out faster if you hit it at that direct spot where that 57 is. What about, you ever borrowed a friend's car? Maybe rented a car? It's not your car. You gotta go get gas and you're like, you're looking in the mirrors like, where is the gas on this car? Do you know you can look at the dash, the little gas, little symbol there, and there's an arrow either on the left side or the right side of that, and that's telling you if it's on the left or the right side of the vehicle? You're welcome. <laughs> All of these things are curious. Makes you ask questions, but why? 
Why does this happen? Why does this exist? Well, friends, this is not unique to our pens and our technology, our keyboards. These kind of questions are going on for years. And it's that kind of question that gets us into the text this morning in Galatians chapter 3. So if you would open your Bibles to see in Galatians chapter 3, Paul poses a question that we should all be asking. They were asking then, and honestly, a lot of you, rightly so, are asking now. And the question is not about some of the things we see around us. The question is, what about the thing we hold in front of us? Namely, the Word of God, specifically so much of what's in what we refer to today as the Old Testament, known as the Mosaic Law. What is its purpose? If you're just joining us today for the first time, we are in the middle of the book of Galatians. We've been working our way through this letter to the churches in the southern part of Galatia. Paul, who's planted these churches, has learned about the fact that other teachers have come through after him and are teaching something contrary to what the gospel is. And he says in the very beginning of of Galatians chapter 1, verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel so that there is no, there is an, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. And then he says in Galatians chapter one, verse eight, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. He says it again in verse 9. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel, contra the one you receive, let him be accursed. So Paul is coming strong, arguably stronger in this writing that he does to these churches than any other writing he has that we have in the New Testament. And he does so for appropriate reasons. Because people who are Christians, new Christians, like so many of you here, are being taught, hey, listen, glad you're here, but just so you know, if you want to stay here, if you want God really to love you, God really to accept you, you have to go back in time and read what it says in Galatians, excuse me, Galatians, in Genesis chapter 17, which is you're to be circumcised. And if you're not circumcised, if you're a man, if you're not circumcised, then God will not accept you. Read it for yourself. And Paul says, no, 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 this is entirely out of order and entirely wrong. Because God made promises in Genesis 12. God made promises in Genesis 15. And those promises were long before there ever was the law being given. Those promises were credited to Abraham because of his faith in God. Well, it comes to this question that we're asking, this why question. And it really gets to the question here in Galatians chapter 3 for our text this morning, verses 19 through 25. Why then the law? Why then the law? And this is significant to, act, to answer this question because it kind of begs the question a lot of what we've sort of learned earlier. Just to give us a running start here again, go back to verse 15. He says, to give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, as he walks through this, No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say and to to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. That is what I mean, the law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to make the promise void. 
For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Now, for those of you who are Christians and maybe have had a chance in your Christian life to read other parts of the Bible, which I always encourage Christians to be reading the Bible every day, you'll know that in the book of Romans, also written by Paul to a different group of Christians, in Romans chapter 3, 4, and 5, Paul just lays down so intensely, so emphatically, the grace of God. That's shocking. It's shocking because it just seems too good to be true, so much so that he really recognizes and perceives the question of the readers, hence why he says in Romans chapter 6, verse well, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? And he says, may it never be. Well, in a very similar way, Paul in these previous verses, all the way to back to the beginning of chapter 2, has been dismantling the law not as if it had no place, but not the place it's being used presently. And so it gets to that kind of question, well, then why then the law? And that takes us to our text today. We're going to answer two questions. And the questions really come from what you can see there in verse 19, again, in verse 21. Question number one is, what is the purpose of the law? Question number two is, what is the function of the law? So what's the purpose of the law? What's the function of the law? They're, they're differing questions. And you can even see back in verses 19, let's look at it now, why then the law, it was added because of transgressions, until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made, and it was put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now, an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? This begins a second question. Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We'll stop there. So question number one is, what is the purpose of the law? Now, just again, to give you understanding, the law is referring, generally speaking, to the law that God gave to the people of Israel through the servant Moses which came about 430 years after the promise made to Abraham, hence was referenced earlier. And so they've been living under, and you know it today by the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments is really an, 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 an elaboration on the two great commandments from Deuteronomy 6. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so he's saying, okay, that's, those are the two commandments. He gives us the Ten Commandments, which eventually produces what we know in the Old Testament is the 630 commands as the law of Moses. And the Jewish people would think, understandably, wait a minute, Paul, are you saying that it has no place? I mean, put yourself in the shoes of every law-revering Jewish person. If it is the case that Abraham's covenant is the basis for God's relationship with his people, then what then was the purpose of the law? Why, why did God even give the law, albeit 430 years later? If Abraham's covenant was adequate, 
Paul knew that many Jews lived like he used to live, with a reverence for, a respect in, and a desire to obey the law perfectly. But he also knew that most of these thoughtful Jews would have argued for some type of progressive revelation, that what God first gave in Abraham, he made more clear through Moses. So it's no surprise then that Paul would be interrogated by his readers in a thorough way of how God's law works for God's plan of redemption. But let's look back at the context. Go back, if you would, to chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. The argument here is that the Galatians themselves, in verses 1 to 5, experience everything good by faith rather than by works. That's what he's talking about in Galatians 3, 1 to 5. And then in Galatians 3, 6 to 9, he brings to the witness stand Abraham himself, and he says, hey, Abraham was justified by faith, not by works. And then in verses 10 to 14, he says, anybody who was under the law were under a curse. Look at verse 10. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. So it's no wonder, friends, that Paul had to clarify the basis for everything. The law was never intended by God to do what the Judaizers were asking it to do. He was never saying, the law was never saying rather that this is actually means by which you can have confident security with God. And I think there's a lot of you perhaps sitting here today who still think that way. Your belief is that God loves you or accepts you depending on how much or how well you obey the law. How well you think you're doing. And oftentimes that reference point comes for how well you think you're doing in comparison to how well others are not doing. This is kind of a convenient interpretation. I mean, I can always find people who are worse than me. And so I'm like, well, God, I mean, if you're going to pick somebody for your, you know, having a kickball team, <laughs> you're going to want me on your team, not him. He or she's a hot mess. But, you know, I'm not that bad. I can, I can get some runs on the board. But that, that way of thinking, whether or not you're Jewish doesn't matter. That way of thinking is the same way that the Jewish people thought, which was, I really am accepted by God based upon how well I do the works of the law. He's like, that's not why it existed. And so what he does here in verses 19 and 20 are these sort of three chords that are wound together. As Scott McKnight helpfully points out, Paul begins by talking about the purpose of the law. Look at verse 19. Look at what it says. It was added because of transgressions. But then... He talks about the temporal limitations of the law, again, verse 19, until the offspring should, be, should come to those to whom the promise has been made. And then he starts talking about the inferences from some of the circumstances surrounding the actual giving of the law to Moses, verses 19, which will seem surprising to some of you, but we'll explain it, which is put in place through angels by an intermediary. Now an intermediary implies more than one, but God is one. So, again, let's make sure no one's getting left behind here. Let's make sure we define our terms. Paul's talking about the law. The best way I can describe it to a modern-day vernacular is think about the Ten Commandments. In fact, I even have for the title of today's message that you can see there, what do we do with the Ten Commandments? 
That's the question really at hand here. What about the law? Why does it exist? Why did God give it? If, if man is not saved by it, why did he give it at all? It seems like a waste of no purpose. Well, let's step back from Galatians in the immediate context and look at the larger purpose of the law. There's really three purposes of why God gave the law. Number one, and we have this on the screen for you. Number one, it reveals the holy character of the eternal God. It reveals the holy character of the eternal God. You actually get to know God through his law because you see and understand perfection of which he is through what he calls for. Only God is perfect, perfect in every attribute, in every capacity. The second purpose of the law is it sets apart the nation of Israel for a time as a distinct from all other nations. There's particular laws in which they have that are dietary, that are ceremonial, that are particular with what they do with their, how they handle themselves, even their sort of political theocracy as they were governed by a people of priests, the Levitical people. And that has a particular purpose as it set them aside, which, mind you, that type of imagery comes often in the New Testament and how God looks at the church today and how the world is to look at the church differently than everybody else around us and how we, some of that language gets brought in as well. And then third, into our purposes in Galatians, reveal the sinfulness of man. The purpose of the law was to reveal the sinfulness of man. Although the law was good and holy, it did not provide salvation for anyone. It showed humanity that no one can keep the law, but everyone falls short of God's standard of holiness. The realization causes us to rely on God's mercy and grace, which is only found in Jesus Christ. See, here's how the law works. The law basically tells you the truth about yourself. Yeah, it, that's what it does. It tells you the truth about yourself, like a good friend. You know, sometimes we have friends that like, or they, we think of them as friends, but they tell us we always look good no matter what we're wearing. We always look good. We always sounded good no matter what we said. You're like, is that really true? Am I really that good looking? Do I really sound that good? And the answer is, no, you don't. But your friends, uh, maybe sometimes not being as friendly as they could, haven't always told you the truth. The law always tells you the truth. The truth about yourself. And it's what you're saying, hey, I just, I just don't want to know it because I don't want the truth about it. This is oftentimes a problem today. The problem today when it comes to explaining the gospel is that people don't want to hear the bad news, but which the good news then is needed. This is a huge problem in a lot of churches today. A lot of churches, generally speaking, and a lot of pastors, particularly speaking, want to tell people the good news of Jesus and his life and his work and, and the hope found in him and the love found in him, but not against the canvas of the backdrop of their own sinful rebellion against God. The reality that they will be judged rightly by that holy God for an eternity in hell, where they will experience such wrath, such righteous wrath, such overwhelming justice of God against their rejection of him, the rebelliousness against him, that all of eternity will take to pay that price. But we don't want to tell that story. We want to kind of carve it, carve it in such a way we just, we just want to get to the good parts. 
But then it kind of begs the question, what are you saved from? What's your big problem? Who is your big problem? If you're not your big problem and God's wrath is your big problem, then why would you need Jesus? And friend, if you're not a Christian here today, you'd be right to ask that question. If no one has told you the bad news, then I don't think you've really had a friend. You know what's worse having a fr- than having a friend doesn't tell you the truth about how you look in your outfit? If you don't look good? is having a pastor who doesn't tell you the truth that you're a sinner, but then tell you the good news that there's Jesus Christ who's the perfect righteous sacrifice and the substitute. But that's what the law is. You go back to the text in verse 19, look at what he says there. It was added because of transgressions. For transgressions. This recognition is... Romans 3 verse 20 says, For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Now, you might think, I think I got a way around this. What I don't know, I don't know, and therefore I'm not held responsible for, right? You know what that's like? You kind of want to plug your ears and like, you know, but here's the problem with that. Keeping your finger in Galatians, go to the left in your Bibles to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 2, Paul, same author, different audience. Paul in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, talks about the gospel. Verse 18, he talks about basically Gentile people, people who were not raised in a religious background. They were not Jewish. They were not going to synagogue, not part of the Old Testament Sabbath worship. He's talking about the consequences then. Then he gets into chapter 2, dealing with all the Jewish people who actually know better, but they don't do any better. But look at what he says about those who did not know, sinning of ignorance, didn't have the law. Verse 14, Romans chapter 2, verse 14. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. Why? Verse 15. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. What's he talking about? He's talking about even Gentiles have a conscience that God has given them that teaches them right from wrong. They know that theft is wrong. They know that lying is wrong. They know that speaking cruel words is wrong. Their conscience convicts them of that. You go back to Galatians 3, why the law? Well, I'm reminded of the quote by Martin Luther, a great reformer from the 1500s, once said, the true function and the chief and proper use of the law is to reveal to man his sin, blindness, misery, wickedness, ignorance, hate, and contempt of God, death, Hell, judgment, and the well-deserved wrath of God. That's why God gives the law, is to show us our true condition, our real state that we're in. He goes on later on in verse 19, 20, talks about how God through angels, through an intermediary. This is a brief passing reference by which there's a passing reference in the Psalms that references this. 
Basically, the understanding that God used angels to provide the Ten Commandments to Moses on Mount Sinai. And he talks about intermediary, which would have been a reference to Moses in verse 19, but how there's just one God, verse 20. So there's not multiple gods, just one God. And that then takes us now to the second question. The first question is, what is the purpose of the law? The second question, what is the function of the law? This is verses 21 through 25. Now, have you ever been caught in an endless cycle of watching YouTube videos that explains you how things work? Maybe I'm just confessing how I waste time sometimes. Like, oh, I did not know that. That's actually fascinating. I've watched all kinds of things, like tractors that have like how they pluck the fruit off a tree without damaging it. Why I watch it, I do not know. I have no aspiration to be a farmer. But these things I'm, I'm totally intrigued by. And it continues to be this way. How farmers get maple syrup out of a tree. How to pick a lock. You never know. <laughs> All for reasons in which I was maybe trapped by a criminal and I need to get out of a room. It would come in handy then. Assuming I had my MacGyver tools with me. It seemingly is like a paper clip and a stick of gum. I somehow can run the world with that as MacGyver did. If the Apostle Paul was to make a YouTube video about the law of God, what would he show? How does the law work? What is its function? Having established the law was given to reveal sin, he must now ask another question. Is the law actually working against the purposes of God and Abrahamic promise? Is it actually contradicting the very plan of God? Well, Paul first states here, look at it in verse 21. Some basic things. Number one, verse 21, he states that the inability of the law first. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. Secondly, he speaks of the function of the law in history. Look at verse 22, the very beginning. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. Under sin. What is basically happening here is just recognizing that everybody is a prisoner to it. Now, I wonder how many of you have ever learned of or read of. I like to read different things, not just watching YouTube, just for the, just for the disclaimer. I like to read about crazy things that have happened in history and I'm you know, captivated by the people who have attempted to get out of jail. Some of you, by my illustration, say we could be concerned about my criminal past or future aspirations. But sincerely, people who try to get out of jail and like how miserable of an attempt they have to try to get out of jail. And some, I mean, criminals are just, I think, just generally speaking, often, not entirely, some are quite smart, some are like unbelievably stupid. Like I read of a guy who had literally was getting out the next day the next day, and he attempted to break out of jail, which set him back five more years. And he was caught for that. This past February, Jose Luis Diaz attempted to escape from a maximum security prison in Bolivia by wrapping himself in sheepskin, crawling to the grassland surrounding the jail. He used his fleece coat to sneak past security and attempted to break through one of the prison's external walls, but he was caught and made fun of. Hamilton County Jail in Noblesville, Indiana, an inmate tried to escape by posing as another inmate due to being released. It might have worked, except the guy wasn't very attentive to details. 
the guy who was due to be released was an African-American while he was a white man. Like, you're not that smart, are you? You're just, it's not all happening up here, is it? Marina Del Mar Rivero tried to free her contortionist boyfriend from jail by packing him in a suitcase that she had brought with her, that she expected that she could do this without anyone noticing or want to look in the suitcase when she left. Surprise! Well, you got to ask the question, who's allowed to bring suitcases to jail anyway? I'm like, I'm just, you know, for just time with my boyfriend, I just got a lot of stuff I want to cover. And somehow that was allowed, but then they were going to ask to look inside of it, like, oh, what do we have in here? Oh, it's your boyfriend. (laughs) I mean, you hear these stories like, man, are people that stupid? They are that stupid. But friends, in a different sort of way, we can be that stupid as well. We can be that foolish to think, you know what? God's law, God's righteous demands on my life, either by what I've read and learned or what I know and sense is right and wrong, doesn't apply to me. I can either deny that there's a God or I can act like he's not serious about his character and his law or I can act like I'm not that bad. And I am now free. Paul says here in Galatians, the law has everybody as a prisoner. Everybody is a prisoner to the law, which is what he continues to see as far as the function. So it's not only the function regarding the inability of the law first and the law in history. Look at verse 22, the very end of verse 22. He says, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. The significance here is to recognize the reality that this promise has been seen throughout history. And then lastly, verses 23 through 25 Look at what he says. It's important here. Before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, like a a teacher, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. Friends, what he's talking about here is the idea that now that Christ has come, And we understand the promise that was made through Abraham to all the nations, that anybody who would believe in the promised one, the offspring, as he says in Galatians 3, who is Christ, in him they are forgiven of their sins. Talks about the law here being a tutor until Christ would come, and he's come. Romans chapter 10 verse 14 says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who Believes. Go back in Genesis, in Galatians chapter 2, just one chapter earlier. Look at verse 16 of Galatians 2. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Why do you care sitting here today in Miami in 2023 about this text? Well, I mean, one, it's God's word, so whatever God says, you want to know it, believe it, live in light of it. But how do you live in light of this? What's the significance of this? Well, consider this. Some of the implications of this is what you can understand regarding the the law of God, specifically the law of Moses, does not, hear me say this, This might be provocative for some of you, does not apply to you today. 
Let me say it to you a different way. If you have been trying to live a parallel life, which is my faith in Christ, but my general belief in and obedience to the Ten Commandments, you are confused at best as to how God intends you to live your Christian life. The law of Moses is suspended. It is not applicable for you. And what's remarkable, this is not just for those of you who are Gentiles and not Jewish. This is even for those of you who are Jewish. That served a purpose for a time. It does no longer accomplish its purpose because Christ has come. Well, then you might be thinking right on your mind, well, does that mean I can steal whatever I want? I can covet whatever I want? Uh-oh, slow down. Because what we can see is we'll see in the coming weeks here in the rest of Galatians, the law of God, the law of Moses was replaced really with the law of Christ by his example, by his instruction. But our desire to fulfill that law is because of our faith in Christ, not our hope that we can barter with God. Faith is the response that God wants of all of us if we're to be accepted by him. And faith only in his son for the forgiveness of our sins. However, the reality is that because we have now put our faith in Christ, we now live, as Galatians 3, 1 to 5 says, life in the spirit and life in the spirit and under the spirit is our desire to seek to do God's will first in any way. So interestingly, here's something to consider. Nine of the Ten Commandments are restated in the New Testament. You know which one's not restated? It's referenced, but not restated by way of commanded, is the Sabbath. The time in which the Sabbath is referenced is referenced in the story of the Gospels when Jesus is talking about it with them as they're talking about breaking the Sabbath or not. Later on in Hebrews, we talked about the Sabbath as Jesus being our Sabbath rest. But the reality is only those nine of those ten come over into the New Testament. Friends, this is significant for us because it recognizes what we should see and we'll see in more detail. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 13. Something we'll see in the coming weeks, but to give you a sneak peek. Verse 13 of Galatians 5. You were called to freedom. They're free from the law. You're called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, meaning to serve yourself. But through love, serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you're not consumed by one another. He goes on to talk about walking by the Spirit. So the significance is this. The law is not bad. It is good. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5 that he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. He came to fulfill it. Every jot and tittle he would accomplish. And all those who put their faith in him Here's the deal. Get credit for having done all of it. (laughs) Is that crazy? To get the perfect record of Jesus applied to you? You can't make it the one day without sinning. It's just not possible. It's like the air we breathe. Like, it's just so common. And while we're being renewed to the image of Christ, the struggle is still there, even in the flesh. 
and yet you get perfect credit as if you've never done anything, thought anything, said anything wrong. Everything has pleased God from beginning to end, from their opening breath to your closing breath. Everything in your life perfect, credited to you by Christ through faith in him alone. Or you can spend an eternity in hell. There are no other ways to be saved. So should we teach the law? We should because it punctures our human pride and it uncovers our sin. But it was never meant to save us. It was only meant to point us to the one who would save us, Jesus Christ. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.